Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. Well, that was quite some start to the week. We're recording this emergency episode of Inside Briefing just after lunch on Monday, bringing together an IFG podcast lineup of all the talents to make sense of Rishi Sunak's reshuffle. The rumours were flying throughout the weekend and the actual sackings and appointments got underway before 9am this morning. So the IFG team wolfed down their Weetabix, raced to the office and fired up our brilliant live blog. So, who is in and who is out? What does this reshuffle tell us about how Rishi Sunak wants to govern and how he plans to fight the general election? And is David Cameron's return to the cabinet a masterstroke or a desperate roll of the dice? Joining me in the studio is IFG live blog overlord Tim Durrant. Hi, Tim. Hi, Hannah. Kath Haddon, our in-house historian and expert on all things constitution, is here. Hi, Kath. Hi, Hannah. And Jill Rutter, IFG senior fellow and number 10 veteran, is back in the studio too. Hi, Jill. Hi, Hannah. Okay, lots to discuss. Tim, as I said, we're recording just after lunchtime on Monday. Can you give us a quick summary of all the big moves so far, please? Of course. So things obviously got going early. Um, Over the weekend, there was lots of speculation about what was going to happen with Suella Braverman. And we heard about 8.30, I think, uh, that she was out of government. So um, the PM uh, or number 10 briefed that out, announced that. We haven't actually seen any kind of formal rationale for that from number 10 or the prime minister exactly what she's deemed to have done wrong obviously there's been lots of speculation about collective responsibility and the piece she wrote in the times and her her comments about policing ahead of the march over the weekend but exactly why the pm decided to do it now is still unclear after that we saw uh, james cleverly was moved to fill the home sec brief and the big surprise of the morning is that former prime minister and now lord david cameron or, short, or shortly to be lord uh, david cameron is the new foreign secretary things went a bit quiet and then over lunchtime we got a few more changes so steve barkley health secretary for the last few months is now environment secretary filling the gap left by therese coffey who has been fired uh there are a few junior ministers who've left as well quite a few people saying they're taking this opportunity to leave government which i think is quite interesting saying they want to focus on their constituency or indeed preparing for leaving the commons altogether at the next election so a few big changes at the top and quite a lot of gaps still to fill on the middle ranks and kath on timing was this sped up because of suella Bubman's lively week and weekend last week because before that most of the speculation i think was about jeremy hunt's future yeah, that's right. And we were wondering if there was going to be a reshuffle at some point after the autumn statements, uh, because there's been rumours about Jeremy Hunt also wanting to step down at the next election and whether or not you wanted to bring in somebody in the run up to the election who, in theory, would be would be staying on in the job. Um, I mean, we knew last Thursday, Friday, that Rishi Sunak was thinking about whether or not uh, Suella Braverman had breached the ministerial code and needed to go. But then they put out a statement very late on Friday, basically saying that he, you know, didn't think that it merited action. Uh, Then we had the marches over the weekend. We all saw what happened. Um, What we also know coming up is on Wednesday, there will be a ruling on the Rwanda uh, asylum policy. And we know that Rishi Sunak and Suella Bravman don't have the same views on the European Court of Human Rights. And so there was a sort of expectation that she might be going to step down then anyway. So it's a bit of a weird one. I mean, one assumes that he must have made a decision last week that she's got to go, but decided that he didn't want to do it before the weekend. I mean, I guess it would have overshadowed 
everything else. The, the marches still would have happened the way they happened, but it probably would have taken over other, spe- you know, other commentary on the Remembrance Sunday. Um, so he left it until today. So I, I'm guessing that actually they made the decision last week, definitely, possibly earlier than that. Maybe he's been thinking about getting rid of her for some time. But how long the Cameron idea has been in in Genesis? I mean, Cameron himself said in 2018 that he'd like to be Foreign Secretary one day. So he's obviously thought about it for a while. But it's difficult to know when they came up with that idea. But they must have been working on it over the weekend because there would have been a lot of proprietary and other issues, making sure the palace were on board in terms of both appointing him as Foreign Secretary and making him a lord. Because that's right, isn't it, Jill? Nobody really saw the the David Cameron appointment coming, so Sunak's team certainly know how to keep a secret. Yes, they do, and I think they will probably be patting themselves on the back that uh, they really did manage a sort of blockbuster surprise this time because there weren't even any rumours that he was potentially uh, going to do anything to force him to leave uh, his regular outings of daytime tennis at my tennis club. <laughs> and do you think it's a good move, Jill? What does he bring to the role? Well, it's quite an interesting move. Um, I'm not sure it's necessarily a sort of great move to move James Cleverley, who actually seemed to be doing quite a good job as Foreign Secretary, hadn't actually been in that role that long, uh, had started to build relations, built very good relations with his director, EU counterpart, Marashevkovich, and did seem to be doing quite a lot, had been to the Middle East a few times, things like that. So it's really interesting that David Cameron decided that James Cleverly had to fill the Sweller Bravman role because obviously once he's left again. David Cameron decided that. I hope hopefully it was Rishi Sunak no, who made that Rishi decision. Sunak decided that <laughs> sorry about that, just defaulting back to someone who is maybe more seared in the memory as Prime Minister than Rishi Sunak. Sorry, sorry, Mr. Sunak. But uh, having decided having decided that he really, really had to uh, move James Cleverly to fill that gap, uh, I think the th- the pluses about David Cameron as Foreign Secretary is he's undoubtedly a sort of figure who is known. Uh, we know that an awful lot of foreign affairs is now done at head of government level rather than at Foreign Secretary level. So he will have done a lot. He'll be known around uh, you know the foreign ministries of the world. So he's comes there. So he's not somebody who's going to have to do learning on the job around a lot of foreign affairs issues. Um though he will have to learn how to be a member of the cabinet as opposed to prime minister, which would be quite an interesting, interesting adjustment for future ministers reflect <laughs> uh, when Tim gets to invite him in at some point in the future. So I think that's all very interesting. But there are some quite interesting things that David Cameron also brings. I mean, Kath mentioned the propriety things. I mean, you know, I think Sir Chris Bryant's already denouncing this as a highly improper uh, move because of the Greensill baggage. But there is other uh, non-propriety baggage that David Cameron brings with him as well. He was he with George Osborne were the big proponents of a very positive relationship with China. You know, he's I think taken some recent you know jobs involving China. He's clearly in a different position to a lot of the Conservative Party on that. Uh, I think he's been doing other things in the Gulf and places like that, which I don't know too much about. But he also will be regarded by a lot of European leaders as probably the person most personally responsible for inflicting, you know, Brexit on them, which they still bitterly regret and think was an act of mad folly 
by the UK think have weakened Europe, potentially sort of, you know, opened the way to give Putin license to be more active there. And uh, it'd be very interesting because one of his roles now will be to be co-chair of the Partnership Council overseeing the UK-EU relationship that Boris Johnson and David Frost negotiated. And Tim, one of the questions we've been getting most frequently this morning is this question of how David Cameron can be Foreign Secretary, how how he can be held to account if he's sitting in the House of Lords. Yeah, so it's not uh, unprecedented for there to be a cabinet member in the House of Lords. We had Nicky Morgan, Baroness Morgan, doing it as... um, at the start of um, culture sec- as culture secretary at the start of uh, the 2019 parliament under Boris Johnson uh, Lord Mandelson uh, under Gordon Brown he was brought back as, as a peer and going back in history there are more examples uh, including actually of um, prime ministers turned foreign secretaries uh, in the House of Lords so it is not unprecedented Lords can ask questions of ministers in the same way that MPs can ask questions of ministers. Um, there obviously isn't the same kind of political cut and thrust in the upper chamber as there is in the lower chamber. And some of the issues um, that Cameron will be dealing with might have quite sort of party political angles to them in terms of the domestic debate. Obviously, the Israel-Palestine question has been hugely kind of politically controversial. And uh, there will be a different type of debate on those kind of issues in the Lords than there will be in the Commons. But they can be scrutinised. They can be asked questions of. I think the other thing is... Uh, kind of as, as as Jill was alluding to actually a lot of foreign policy is still done at head of state level head of government level so the prime minister will still be the one making statements about meeting EU leaders or about trips to, to the Middle East or to the UN or whatever it might be so Cameron brings that kind of gravitas and actually having him in the Lords might mean that sort of some of the party politics is taken out of foreign policy for a little while but there will still be discussion about it in the Commons and of course there are other ministers in the Foreign Office who are still MPs. Although, of course, one of the most interesting things about foreign policy in recent years with Ukraine and and now the Middle East is the degree of lack of uh, party political Absolutely. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, yeah. There's a, I mean, there's lots of issues, I think, that will take a while before they work out. I mean, um, firstly, I think this is a move in as much as we're all talking about David Cameron. We're not really talking about Suella Bravman. So mm. pure politics, yeah. it's been a very clever move. I mean, obviously, Suella Bravman has said she will have more to say. That's all we got from her resignation statement. So I'm sure she's not gone away. Um, I do think it's very interesting on that point about uh, accountability. It's a big question for Labour because at the moment they've got David Lammy, who it was David Lammy versus James Cleverly. He'll now be facing off against Andrew Mitchell if he stays in job or whoever the other, you know, whoever is the Minister of State uh, at that point. Labour have got uh, Lord Collins, Ray Collins, uh, as the spokesperson for the entire foreign policy brief in the Lords. So do they need to backfill, put some more people behind that brief or also bring in some kind of big hitter they have got some big names in the house of lords that they could probably co-opt into that role uh, at least for the duration there's also though some questions for me for cameron doing this role i mean one you know you've said he was he was a head of state himself he's done that role but he's done it as head of state if you're foreign governments and there's a really tricky issue where you need the uk on side or you're trying to you know play off different western states against each other do you call Rishi or do you call David Cameron if you've had a long relationship with David Cameron? What if they're not on the same page? Can David Cameron adjust to being the second in command on all that? And the same is true of everything else. He's not just coming in here where he gets to like just do that job. If he's on the Today programme talking about foreign policy and somebody brings up an issue of domestic policy, he's got to be signed up to the entirety 
of government policy. He is a minister like anyone else. He used to be able to call the shots on that. But collective responsibility works both ways. It means that he's also got to make sure that he's on board with all of that. So it, it's still going to be quite tricky for it to I think we we'll have to hope that he and Rishi Sunak actually had a sort of serious conversation about how this would work before we made the appointment. Because the real risk is you do something like that and uh, then down the line you realise that uh, perhaps you didn't have quite the same understanding. That said, many of us were deeply sceptical that Gordon Brown could make the relationship with Peter Mandelson, where frankly there was a huge amount more personal baggage at play than the policy baggage that David Cameron brings. And actually that worked really amazingly well in the latter days of that Labour government. So, but so that I think was, it is Mandelson possibly, had never been Prime Minister. You know, Mandelson, maybe had been pri- Mandelson had been Prime Minister, but there were deeply problematic sort of issues going on there. So I think you can make those sorts of relationships, those sort of surprise relationships of two big hitters coming together. And it's quite interesting. David Cameron, you know, has put out some very nice words about Rishi Sunak, about how he thinks he's doing a good job, haven't agreed on everything, but, uh, but clearly he wants to do it. And clearly was just, you know, felt his time was cut short a bit uh, bit too soon and clearly felt he had more to give. And I think as a general principle, it's really good to be able to have former prime ministers who are prepared to serve in cabinets. I think that was quite a big loss. Um, you know, when we were speculating this morning about what they might do, sort of vaguely wondering, they might ask Theresa May if she fancied another stint at the Home Office if they had that. But uh, but I'm, maybe she's sitting there wondering, well, maybe I could come back too. I don't know. But, Joel, do you think that um, this means that Sunak has given up on the rest of his MPs? I mean, he did have quite a lot of other people he could have chosen from if he'd wanted a new Foreign Secretary. I'm not sure whether it means he's given up on them, but I think the risk for him is that they think he has in the same way as one of the things that was very difficult for David Cameron in 2010 was having to give a quarter or so of the ministerial seats to Liberal Democrats and left him with some very, very unhappy people who'd shadowed portfolios and thought that, uh, that you know, a Conservative government was coming and they would be in it. I think, you know, when there's, you know, People who don't like Rishi Sunak that much anyway, or people who might have hoped for a preferment will say, well, he didn't have to bring him back. That was a really plum job. Could and should have gone to one of us and then that would have created more vacancies. So I have to see what it looks like at the end of the end of that. And I think it'd be very interesting to see how this plays through. At the moment, you can see really big splits and sort of, you know, what you might call conservative X um, in discussing this appointment. Some people very pro, very pleased to see David Cameron back and others who thought they'd been shot of him and are quite you know, surprised and appalled yeah. that he's made a comeback. It will split on lots of different levels. You've already talked about this China and there are obviously China hawks in the party. What was really interesting, I've been asked a few times today, of, is this like a political positioning move from Rishi Sunak? Is he tacking more to the centre by getting rid of Suella and bringing in you know, a former prime minister who was much more to the centre than... Um, prime ministers since then and I was sort of you know equivocating on it as as uh, I often like to do what's been very notable though is Greg Hans earlier today who's the conservative chairman making the case that Cameron's appointment has strong appeal to conservative Lib Dem switchers I mean he's basically saying that that is attack to the centre that they are focusing on the blue wall and trying to sort of reposition the party in that way and that will alienate a lot of the red wall MPs and remember we've been talking about reshuffles for months months as an opportunity to bring in 
newer MPs from the 2019 cohort. So they will also be agreed unless they get those mid-ranking jobs that, as we said earlier, hadn't yet been filled by the time we started talking. I guess it depends whether those Lib Dems can forgive David Cameron for Brexit. Tim, does this mean that Sunak's a strategy which he appeared to be pursuing at party conference of arguing that he was the change candidate and every government for the last 30 years had been a disaster is uh, dead in the water now? It is odd, isn't it? I mean, I, I just don't know if there's any other way of talking about it, but like he made this big pitch of like, I'm going to do things differently. Everyone before me made all these mistakes. You know, he's washing his hands of the Conservative record as much as it was of New Labour. And then he brings back... The person, the most, the longest serving Conservative Prime Minister we've had of this batch of Conservative governments, um, as Jill said, probably the, the one with biggest name recognition, uh, the one most closely associated with Brexit, which may be a good thing, maybe a bad thing. I think from reading people on Twitter, it seems like Remainers are angry that Cameron is back because he led to Brexit and Brexiteers are angry about because he didn't want Brexit to happen. So it's pleasing no one on that debate, which is something we all, you know, love reliving, don't we? But like it i just i just don't understand the rationale behind that conference speech which was a month ago to now and saying look this is this is what i want it feels it feels very strange and it feels very sort of back to the future and it also feels like bringing in a big name and putting them in the lords it feels like a holding pattern you know it's like this i, I tweeted sort of you know that silly meme about big sam till the end of the season like bring big dave back till the end of the season like it feels like okay let's give him a job 6 months maybe a year there'll be an election we're not going to do anything very much with this post. We just want someone who kind of can keep the ship steady. And it doesn't feel like it's a very sort of ambitious reshuffle in terms of setting out Zunak's stall, neither as the change candidate nor as the continuity candidate because of this mixed messaging. And Kath, I mean, four big, great offices of state, four men. It's not a brilliant look, is it? No, and uh, people have been pointing out that they're all now from public schools, and that's the first time since I cannot remember the date that somebody said, but it might even have been the 1960s since uh, that has been true. So, yeah, regressive in that case. Uh, There have been other appointments. Uh, I think we just saw that Victoria Atkins has been appointed to health. Um, And there are a few key people around Sunak that he's been clean to promote. Claire Coutinho was was one that he brought her on as energy secretary. Was that even this year? I can't remember. It was was, a couple of months ago, Kath. (laughs) How little I can remember this year. So there are people that he's bringing on. But yes, those sort of top ranking is a problem for him. And Jill, just to go back to the point that Tim made at the beginning, quite a large number of junior ministers choosing to step down at this point. We've seen Nick Gibb, Jesse Norman, Neil O'Brien. What do you think is going on there? Normally, you're sticking around and hoping for promotion at at that point. Well, I think what's the calculation that people are possibly making? Uh, Are they thinking, well, actually, I need to spend more time in my constituency because I need to be seen there and develop a bit more of a constituency profile because that's my route to hanging on to my constituency. Some of them will have suffered from boundary changes, so they want to do that. Um, Others maybe may have already given up on their chances of winning their constituency. Some are saying they're already standing down at the next election and want to get early into the jobs market because one of the phenomena that we've seen is some people making early moves to line up what they might do because probably uh, 
not elected Conservative MPs are going to be uh, going to be you know have quite a glut sometime when we have the election. So if you can get a bit ahead into that market and line yourself up, you might find that a better way of securing your and your family's future than if you hang around to the last minute in some junior ministerial job where you probably won't get to do that much. Don't make the political weather. And where, frankly, you're not lining yourself up your, in your estimation for your move into the cabinet in you know, Rishi Sunak's second administration in later 2024, early 2025. And Tim, we should highlight a core IFG concern, uh, which has been on full display in this reshuffle, and that's turnover. So we've got the seventh foreign secretary in seven years, uh, the 16th housing minister when they're appointed yeah we don't know who they are yet but. Well, we don't know who they are but we know one's gone so yeah. we know we're going to get a new housing minister yeah. i mean is it any wonder that we don't get any continuity of policy i think that's exactly right and again it goes to that sort of like the, the discontinuity between what they say and what they do so the pm was all about long-term decision making right and if you can't make long-term decisions if you have new people in the job every few months so on housing rachel mclean who apparently there was a pushback by some cabinet members to try and keep her in the post and she did she did get sacked she has done the job for around nine months which is longer than almost the previous four people put together it's not not quite but it almost is the same as four people like it's and, and housing is obviously a huge problem right housing is one of the big issues facing the country and there have been so many people doing these jobs it almost seems like there is kind of correlation between the biggest problems the uk is facing and the ministers responsible for those issues now yeah it, it just means you know they take time to get to know their departments they take time to get to know the kind of key businesses and ngos and all the other people in the sector they're responsible for they take time to know what they have to do when you've got an election in the next 12 months you might have ministers who are like well i need to make my mark i need to get a quick win which might mean ripping up what someone else has been working on or it might mean kind of pushing away long-term decisions and just saying i want to achieve this between now and the next six months which doesn't lend itself to good policy making at all and kath what does this say about collective responsibility the aftermath of the government affair. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that it is Sunak putting his foot down and saying enough is enough on that front. Brahman has been pushing at collective responsibility for a long period of time, as Boris Johnson did under Theresa May's premiership. Um, so, but I, I mean, really, you've got to see whether or not he's actually able to, to put it into practice with the remaining ministers and um, and also how he's managing the party more generally because she will, you know, go off and find her people uh, outside of government and I'm sure will not be keeping quiet. Um, so he has a wider problem with, it's not the official collective responsibility, but with keeping his party together and keeping them on message and so forth. Uh, And all of these things are about the same thing, which is what is his strength as a prime minister to be able to force either his ministers or his wider party to keeping on the same script and, you know, rowing in the same direction, or is it just disintegrating? And there is a lot of speculation about, you know, the Conservative Party and, and whether it is getting worse rather than better. I mean, coming in, I have no idea what Rishi Sunak's problem with Rachel McLean was and why he decided to sack her. But if he's sacking people and then people are refusing to take jobs and he actually has real difficulty filling that, that does give you a sort of end of days feel about the government because, you know, 
is when Boris Johnson couldn't construct a functioning government that he finally realised that his days were up. But I think it's really, really a difficult look if the story of the reshuffle at the lower ranks, where people won't know the names, these are all future pointless answers, no one will know who these people are um, outside their constituencies and outside their families. But if the story becomes that the Prime Minister is touting jobs around and nobody wants to take them, that's a really bad look for a reshuffle, which was supposed to be a big, you know, re-energised, reset moment. And that would be very, very bad news for Rishi Sunak and his team. Purely in presentational terms, Tim, and you you have the uh, delight of being on top (laughs) of all the reshuffles at the IFG. The last one I seem to remember being very slick. We just had a series of yeah. tweets, of yeah. appointments. Absolutely. This time we've had big gaps. Yeah, and, it's, and it's felt a bit chaotic. So I'm thinking back, you know, over the last year we had obviously Liz Truss came in and that her cabinet was completely briefed out in advance. Everybody knew what was happening. Sunak came in a few weeks later and patched together a cabinet, but that was quite straightforward. His big changes earlier this year were when he created the new departments that led to eventually to Claire Coutinho getting... Yep. getting no, Claire the, well, was... She came in later, after yeah. the department was created, but yeah, Grant Shapps and then Claire Coutinho. And those those changes were all pre-planned. Everybody knew what was happening. It was very slick. As you say, there's been big gaps. Um, it, apparently the PM was in Downing Street, called some people in. Therese Coffey was in Downing Street for a couple of hours before it was announced that she was resigning slash being sacked. I think some people have sort of been offered jobs that they don't want and are refusing them and therefore saying they're resigning from the government rather than allow themselves to be sacked. It's that kind of thing. Well, you can't fire me. I've quit. You know, it it doesn't feel very in control and beyond the kind of early morning news about Braverman and Cameron. So, yeah, it's it's unclear sort of how long this is going to run on for. And uh, as Jill was saying, it doesn't feel like a sort of look at us, look at the shiny new team. It feels a bit kind of scrabbly and patched together. And what's your prediction? Is this the last reshuffle before an election? I hope so. I very much hope so. <laughs> I don't think it will be. I think we might still see a new chancellor. I mean, they're already briefing potentially that, you know, Jeremy Hunt is for the autumn statement, possibly for the budget, but maybe not long term. And there have already been stories. I mean, Kath was pointing to the all-male top team that Rishi Sunak might very much want to stop Rachel Reeves being able to claim she's the first female chancellor by securing that for a Conservative as well in the shape of you know his protégé, Claire Coutinho, uh, who would certainly meet that billing, uh, who would come to that job with a massive around six months cabinet experience. Although more experience in the Treasury before that. Though more experience in the Treasury before that. It's always, always a good thing to have more experience in the Treasury. Well, I think that's it for today. Thank you to Kath Haddon, Joe Rutter and Tim Durrant. Now fix yourselves a coffee and get back to the live blog. Talking of which, make sure you check out that live blog, Brilliant Analysis, Graphs, Data, Observations and IFG Insight. It's on our website. We'll be back later in the week for our regular episode of Inside Briefing, when we'll have had a chance to take a breath. Well, possibly. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms. Do subscribe and please leave us a review. See you later in the week, everyone.